Well, hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Good to see you again, and welcome back to Modern Wealth Management. I'm Ryan Ruff, your moderator, and it's great to be kicking off season two with everybody today. As always, I'm going to be joined by my right-hand man, the star of our show. That's the co-founder and, of course, the managing partner of Modern or Monon Wealth Management, that is, Derek Hutchins. Derek's going to be jumping aboard with me, and here in season two, we're going to continue You know, a lot of the conversations surrounding wealth management that we started in our last season. We're going to be diving deep into some of the conversations conversations that Derek is having routinely and regularly with his clients and offering, you know, strategies and solutions, different outlooks to approach a lot of financial challenges. And as we move, especially into 2024, a, a big year with a lot ahead for us. So in getting into today's discussion, it's really focusing around 2024 and your plan. So before we get knee deep into it, really, let's go ahead and say hi to the man of the hour. Derek, good to see you today. How you doing? Hey, it's great to see you, Ryan. I am absolutely thrilled to be back here uh, for season two and uh, can't wait to share some of this content that we have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and Derek, we're we're kind of starting high level, if you will. You know, we're sitting down to record this as we're rolling into, you know, calendar year 2024. A lot of considerations as we wrapped up 2023 and of course what's coming with us in the year. But why don't you frame things up for the audience today? What ultimately did we want to sit down and talk about today? Well, you know, when we head into a new year, um, you know, I've been in this business now, this is my 24th year. And uh, for 24 years, the kickoff of each year, we talk about, uh, or di different advisors talk about what's to come and they'll give their predictions, uh, tell you how you should invest your money and, and so on. So uh, I think that what we should talk about is, is how you as an investor can grow your money in calendar year 2024 and of course beyond. And um, uh, my predictions may be a little bit different than what, uh, than what people are used to, but, uh, but I think it'll be a great discussion. For sure. And, and in kind of staying high level before we get into the weeds, Derek, let's get into the why. Why would you say this is so important to be talking about, especially as we sit down right here at the beginning of 2024? But why is, is you know, having an investment plan and, and talking about your portfolio as a whole, why is this so important to begin with? Well, I think it really starts off, Ryan, when you consider the landscape of the investment advisor universe. And um you know, what sells out there and what attracts attention is uh, the, the next shiny object. And so as we head into a calendar year, it's natural for the viewer to want me to, to tell them, hey, what's the hot stock? Is uh, cryptocurrency uh, going to continue its run? Is there, uh, is there any new AI that we need to be focused in on as an investment opportunity? Where are interest rates going to go? These are the kind of questions that when somebody tunes into a show like this, they are used to hearing. Uh, what I'm going to say to you is, is that uh, just because the calendar changed, it doesn't mean it's a reset of all investment themes and thoughts and so forth. Uh, we like to create our New Year's resolutions and, um, you know, new plans for the future. But just because we go from December 31st to January 1st, it's not as though, hey, now, you know, this whole new set of stocks, this new whole set of bonds or this uh, new technology. Now, you know, now because we're in calendar year 24, this is where you got to be. So really what I want to focus in on today is is why, you know, 
why this is so, so important, you know, whether it's 24, 25, 2026, or someplace in, you know, beyond, the answer is, is that you don't have to know exactly what the best technology is, what's the latest cryptocurrency, um, you know, what is the stock that you have to be in? Because even if I were to tell you that, uh, there's no guarantees that that would be true. Everybody wants to know what stock is absolutely going to go up. And I hate to disappoint everybody, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know. And I haven't known for the last 24 years of my career. So what I really do want to focus in on is, is uh, investors having a game plan, uh, having a game plan that they can live with going into 2024 and beyond. And that game plan should help them organize their thoughts and their investment strategies into something that's going to work for them and their goals. You know, along the way, there is bound to be uh, times of uncertainty and anxiety. And, um, you know, I, I hate to say this, but that's not a bug of an investment program. It's a feature. The fact that there is uncertainty and anxiety and volatility in the markets is why they, re they reward us with returns over the long term. We know what short-term guaranteed rates look like. They're, they are higher today than they've been in the past, but they're not going to stay up this high. Um, so in order to get a, a, a better rate of return than what you're going to get from a guaranteed money market or savings account, well, then you're going to have to embrace some of that uncertainty, some of that anxiety, and recognize that that just kind of comes that just kind of comes with the territory. Um, you also you gotta you gotta create some core beliefs and a high level strategy because what happens, Ryan, is is that um, most investors they kind of they you know they bend with the ebbs and flows of the market and statistics tell us you know, we have statistics going way back in time to show how investors have done. And I want to bring up a chart here that um, that I found. And this this really this encompasses a 20 year time frame from 2001 through 2021. And what you'll see on here is, is that most asset classes, whether it be stocks or bonds uh, in U.S. or international, most of them did pretty well over this 20-year time period. With that being said, the average investor did not. If you take a look there, you know, a 60-40 portfolio, so that would be 60% stocks and 40% bonds. Over that 20-year run, it averaged about 9% annualized rate of return. By any, by any set of standards, that is pretty darn good. But unfortunately, the average investor fell behind. The average, while the 60-40 uh, did a 9% rate of return, our average investor, and I'm talking about the US uh, investor base, all of us collective, the average investor over that time period only got 3.8% annualized return over that time. So I think it's pretty clear, Ryan, that as we head into 
this next year in lieu of looking for the next hot ticket or the next uh, emotional trade that we want to make, I think we'd be better off taking a step back and say, hey, how do we close that gap between how asset classes have done and how we have done as investors? Certainly. I mean, at the end of the day, you need a game plan, plain and simple. And and Derek, as we were gearing up to sit down and record today's episode, I know you had you kind of whittled this whole conversation down to really three big, important topics that you wanted to cover with everybody today. What are those three? We'll obviously get into each of them. But from a high level, what are those three? Well, I think starting off, we've got to we really have to understand what our long term investment objectives are. You know, too many people come into the year and just say, hey, um, I want to make money. Well, yeah, guess what? We all want to make money with our investments. That's why they're in there. But we need to have a little bit longer term strategy. And that strategy, we have to consider our investment allocation first. And I want to and I want to talk about that and, and we'll go into greater detail. But the investment allocation is going to be the first decision that we make after we determine what are our long-term investment objectives. And then once we have created our investment allocation, then of course we will select the appropriate investments to, to plug to plug in there. Sure. It's a process. So let's let's start off with that that you know identifying kind of your long-term investment objectives. Let's get a little more granular with this, Derek. Uh, dive into this for us and what all does this process entail? Yeah, so when you're setting your long-term investment objectives, you got to really think about who you are as a person, uh, what your current situation is, and what what goals do you have in the future. And I think it really starts off with how what's your risk tolerance. And we've heard that term before, and uh, maybe it's not super clear to the audience as to what that means. But in my world, risk tolerance means how accepting are you of the natural volatility that that we're all forced to reckon with uh, in the achievement or in the pursuit of longer term gains? So first and foremost, what is your risk tolerance? And then the second thing is, should you have additional risk aversion on top of that? You may think of yourself as a uh, an aggressive investor. But if your situation based upon your income, your health, uh, your expected lifespan, um, you may not have the ability to financially withstand large swings in your portfolio. Uh, you may mentally be able to accept it, but the financial plan may not be. So we got to think about that as well. And then, of course, the third one is what is the um, what's the rate of return that you are trying to achieve? You know, if you are um, if you're trying to achieve four percent uh, or eight percent, those are two completely different numbers, and um, and there's mathematically ways to get those, but they have to we have to invest differently uh, based upon what your objectives are. And, you know, when you think about that, the risk tolerance, your risk aversion and your rate of return objective, the reason that I'm asking you to think through that is because I'm trying to put time on your side. 
Um, you know, with time, we have the opportunity to do a couple of things. The first thing is, is that we get an opportunity to reduce risk. And the second thing that we can do is compound our earnings. Let's take that first one. Let's take the risk reversion um, uh, first. And um, so I have a slide up here. And what this talks about is, is that time really helps reduce risk. We did a study and we went back in time all the way to January of 1926. So uh, almost 100 years of market history. And for any one particular year, guess what? The stock market can be pretty volatile. It's had years as good as almost 163% rate of return. But unfortunately, it's also seen years where you would have lost almost 68% of your money. That is a really wide variance. And so what we have to understand is that as we're heading into 2024, um, any one year can be kind of a wild ride. As we put time on our side and we go out and we say, okay, well, what about five years? was we look at those same, those same numbers going back to 1926. Um, if we say, hey, what's the average annualized rate of return over any five-year time period from 1926 to 2022? And the answer, it, 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 uh, it compacts quite a bit. And, it, and from there, over a five-year time period, we've seen rates of return as high as 36%, which is fantastic but also as low as minus 17 and a half, which is pretty devastating if you compound that over five years. You go out 10 years, and now we're starting to narrow it down even further. And then it's not until we get to 20 years where over that last approximately 100 years, um, there's nobody that's invested in the S&P 500 and stuck with it for a 20-year time period that's ever lost money. The worst time period over that was an increase of uh, approximately 2% a year. So again, as we increase time, we are able to reduce risk. And that is, um, that's the first, you know, that's the first part of, of understanding what time can do. The second thing, and I pulled up my next chart, which is called the miracle of compound growth. And what this really is about is, you know, um, you know, if we had a million dollars invested in an account and it earned 8%, well, everybody can do that math pretty easy. That's a $80,000 gain. But when you start compounding that, not only does the million dollars again make money, but the 80,000 that you earned last year, it also makes money. And so as you can see here from this chart, in the very first year, you invest a million bucks, you make 8%, and that equates to $80,000. But 20 years later, if you let this compound, now all of a sudden that 8% represents a $345,000 gain. And that is just simply because not only are you growing the original a million dollars, 
but you're also growing each year's growth. And that is called compound growth. So again, just to kind of wrap this up is that I just want to encourage everybody to um, let's have a game plan that we are comfortable with, that we can live with so that we can allow for time to both reduce our risk and increase our long-term returns. Yeah, no, Derek, this is great. You know, take a look at the risk chart there, the compound growth. Obviously, you see the benefits in kind of leveraging some long-term investment objectives, but you had mentioned earlier kind of the next step in that that process really is this idea of planning your asset allocation. So dive into this a little bit. Where do we stand here and, and how do you take maybe, let's say, one of your clients through this process? Yeah, so once we really understand where a person is, who they are, uh, what's their tolerance for risk, and what is their expected rate of return. At that point, we can take that information and we can build what we call an asset allocation. And an asset allocation, well, you know, that is just a process of deciding how much of your money you put in different asset classes. Asset classes can be stocks, bonds, real estate, cash, uh, I guess cryptocurrencies could fall in there if you're so inclined, but these are different asset classes. And so your, your, your next decision after understanding who you are as an investor and what your goals are is then to align the asset allocation with that. And this is so, so important. Probably the most important decision that you'll ever make as it relates to um, to your investments. And to emphasize that, I've pulled up another chart here where it just says, you know, asset class selection is the most important. And by our studies, um, asset class selection determines about 94% of your success or failure as an investor. Not which stock, not when you invested, but what did you, what asset class did you invest in? 94%. Security selection, meaning, hey, did I choose NVIDIA or Apple in my uh, portfolio? Well, that's important, uh, but only to a, a about a 4% level. So 4% of your success or failure is, hey, did I choose the right stocks? Yet, isn't it interesting, Ryan, that that's, you know, all these shows on CNBC and Fox News, that's 100% of what they talk about. And actually, it's only 4% of the success. Right. And what you had mentioned earlier, this is what so many people focus on, when especially when we're turning from December 31st to January 1st. That it's what is that hot new stock? Well, in reality, there you have it, 4% of, of what uh, of the... Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that we focus in on, on CNBC, Fox News, or in conversations with our buddies on the golf course is, is it the right time to be in the markets? Is it a good time? Is it a bad time? And, um, and the answer is, is that your market timing only represents about 2% of your success or failure. And then when you dig into this study a little bit further, what we find is, is that security selection and market timing is almost always a negative drag on performance. Most people choose the wrong security and most people 
uh, mistime the market. So that 6%, we're not getting that right as a population. Um, and and it, it's truthfully, even if we don't, it's not super meaningful as the overall portfolio is concerned. Well, let's get into the, this idea of stocks and bonds then as well, because that's a big part of the asset allocation. It's a conversation that comes up a lot. Derek, talk to us about this. Well, you know, when you're building an asset allocation, we talked earlier about a 60-40 portfolio. And, and I, you know, sorry if I didn't explain that a little bit deeper, but 60-40 is, I would say, the most traditional of American portfolios. And that would be 60% stocks and 40% bonds. Most of your uh, balanced mutual funds are, are fitting somewhere around this, uh, uh, around these numbers. But the reason that we talk like that is because, again, asset allocation and which assets are we in is most important. And so how much stocks versus how much bonds and other stuff has to be the primary uh, first decision that we make. And so I pulled up a chart here to, to, to really talk about this. And this is stocks versus bonds, again, going back to 1926. And what you can see from here is that from 1926, uh, compounded through 2022, I don't have 23's numbers out yet, but I will shortly. Um, it, you know, over that time period, stocks did really, really well. Had you invested $1 into the S&P 500 in 1926, at the conclusion of 2022, you'd have had about $11,500. Small caps, so those, the smaller group of companies, those that maybe aren't the largest 500 in the US, they did even better. They're more risky, they move up and down uh, more volatile, and you've been rewarded for that over time. Those have actually grown from a dollar to up and close to 27,000. Now in contrast to that, as well as those stocks did, let's take a look at how bonds have done. You know, bonds are supposed to be the safety portion of your portfolio, and there's a price to pay for safety, all right? We enjoy the uh, kind of flat, uh, doesn't move up and down so much, but, over that time period, a dollar in U.S. Treasuries, long-term U.S. Treasuries, turned into $131. Now, uh, 131x of your original investment, I'm not saying that that's a bad investment. Um, it, it certainly wasn't. But you left a lot on the table for the decision to go to bonds versus stocks. And hopefully, the reason that you made that decision is because you knew yourself as an investor and that you couldn't withstand um, the wild rides of the stock market. You know, a lot of us today, we have more money sitting in cash than ever before. It's very well documented how much money is sitting into uh, our savings accounts and money markets and short-term treasuries and so on. Well, you know, great. Um, that seems to be a pretty decent uh, move right now as a lot of my clients are making 5% or more on their cash reserves. But I will tell you that since 1926, it's not been a great strategy. A dollar invested in uh, a cash-like equivalents going back that far, well, it's turned into approximately $22 today, 
which is just barely over inflation. And that's what it's supposed to be, right? I mean, we put money in money markets so that we have the same buying power when we want to pull it out and spend it as the day that we put it in. That's the only promise that they really are supposed to make, that they'll return your cash and they'll give you enough interest so that you can still buy the same amount of gas or groceries or whatever uh, as the day that you put it in. That's what that's what cash mm -hmm. is for. So again, just kind of, you know, to, to put this in a nutshell, uh, deciding on, hey, am I looking for growth? And if so, that portion should probably be in stocks or am I looking for safety? And if that's the case, well, then your bonds and or uh, cash reserves is probably the place for that piece of money. I had an old boss, great boss, um, one of the, uh, the best ones I ever had. He's a real mentor to me. And what he used to tell me, Ryan, is when you know what the money's for, picking an investment becomes pretty easy. And you can see that from this chart here. You know, if the money was for long-term growth, well, then you should pick either the red or the blue line, which represents stocks. If the money is to spend on a house or your kid's education in two or three years, or if it's just for a new car or a safety cushion, well, stocks aren't a very good safety cushion because I don't know where they're going to be six months from now. And that's where you kind of get into the bonds and or the cash. So um, I think that that I think that wraps that up. Sure. And before we totally, you know, put a, you know, a bow on top of our conversation surrounding this idea of, of planning out your asset allocations, we hear a lot of talk about the U.S. versus foreign markets. What's your take on this? And, uh, you know, before we move on to that third important factor of today's conversation. Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, so when we take a look at the world stock market, the global stock market, uh, as represented by, you know, the price of every every stock out there, about 60% of all market cap or 60% of all the value of the world stocks are headquartered in the United States. Um, and about 40% are headquartered or live someplace else. And um, so when we think about the world stock market, uh, you have to start with that. You have to understand that while we every single day are focused in on how did the S&P 500 or how did the NASDAQ or how did um, the, the Dow Jones, how did they perform? What we're looking at is how did the U.S. stock market perform? And keep in mind that that's only 60% of the global market. Now, um, I've, I'm going to pull up a chart here, and this talks about U.S. and foreign markets and how they perform differently. We are uh, still in a time period where U.S. stocks have greatly outperformed foreign stocks over the past 10 to 12 years. It's been very well documented, and it will make us think, um, well, what's the point? What's the point of international stocks? Why would I own anything in Europe or Australia or Japan or God forbid China? Uh, why would I own any stocks out here when 
it's pretty clear that over the last 10 to 12 years that U.S. stocks have have done better. Well, that's true. Over the last 10 to 12 years, stock, U.S. stocks have done better. But what you can see from this chart is, is it's not always like that, that U.S. and foreign markets do perform differently. And just because we've had a 10 to 12 year run of U.S. outperformance, it doesn't mean that the all that this other 40 percent of stocks are no longer a viable place to invest. I would make the argument that by investing across borders, um, moving from here on, we have an opportunity to not only reduce risk within portfolios, but perhaps also enhance returns. You know, all of us love the idea of buying low and selling high until it's time to do it. Well, here we are today and the U.S. stock market has outperformed for several years in a row. And so what I would say is, is that if you don't have at least some foreign market exposure within your portfolio, you might miss, be missing some diversification opportunity. And that diversification, again, can help not only reduce risk, but also increase rates of return as we move forward. Appreciate you kind of putting the cherry on top there for uh, th this idea of kind of the asset allocation process. But uh, that third big point that you had made, Derek, now was really implementing your investments. Talk me through this process now that we've we've made our long term plan. We've picked our asset allocation. Let's go through that third and final step. Once you have your asset classes identified and what percentage of your portfolio needs to go into each asset class, then it's a matter of picking the securities. And when we're investing, we all face two different risks. The first one is market risk. And that is, you know, that's what we talk about. That's a recession, that is interest rates. Um, those are things that affect the market as a whole. And unfortunately, it's very tough to diversify away from market risk. But that's not really where people are making their mistake. Because the second risk or the second choice is individual company risk. And that's where we, we are saying, hey, um, I want to own a big chunk of XYZ technology company or ABC industrial company because I think their prospects of growth are, are really good. You may be right. You may be wrong. But what you have there is individual company risk. So um, an individual company risk can absolutely be diversified. So in lieu of just, hang, of just holding on to a portfolio of five to 10 to 20 stocks, well, it would be more diversified if you had 50 to 100 stocks. Uh, in today's world, there's all kinds of different uh, investment vehicles that with a single symbol allow for us to gain broad exposure to whatever asset class you are attempting to get to. Um, the second thing we, when we talk about implementing our investments is, is that we've got to pick something that allows for us to stay invested, okay? And, you know, I, I, I kind of said this earlier, like having a portfolio that you can live with. Well, 
you have to be able to live with it because I have to get you to be to stay invested, stay invested over the ups, stay invested over the downs, stay invested when you're excited and stay invested when you're disappointed. These are all parts of the investment game that we're playing. And in order to win, we have to stay invested. So I pulled up this chart here. This talks about the performance of the stock market and goes from 1997 through 2021. And it shows that had you invested $1,000 in 1997 and you had ridden the stock market and let it go over that entire time period and cashed it out in 2021, well, you'd be up, you'd be up over $10,000. So you put in a thousand, you have more than 10,000. Great, great result. If at any point along the way, you pulled the money out for one week and you happen to miss the best week of that 10 year time period. So we're just talking about five trading days over that entire time period. Well, your rate of return now dropped to under 9,000. Had you missed the best month, it gets even worse. And of course, if you miss the worst, the best three months or six months, it's even worse. And I'll tell you why this happens, Ryan. It's because the best week, the best month, the best three months, the best six months, it all happens when it, it all starts when we're really scared. Um, it happens when there's money flowing out of the market. It starts when it seems like a reasonable decision to get out of the market. So to kind of wrap this up, we have to pick out an investment allocation and then individual securities that allow for us to stay invested along the way. Because at the exact time that you want to get out, is probably the exact time that the market is about ready to go on a run. It's just how it goes. Just how it goes. Well, Derek, it's funny you bring up staying invested because I know you had shared a, a story with me, uh, you know, and a, a big hot topic really in, in kind of a, the NASDAQ's performance back in the 90s and how it illustrated this whole point that you're making and staying invested, developing your long-term plan and sticking to that plan. Share that story with our audience because I think it's really, it's really enlightening. Well, you know, I don't think that there's any better teacher than looking at the past and an even better teacher than that is living it. And so I started my career in 2000 and I started my career because in the late nineties, the technology sector in the stock market was so exciting. Um, the internet was brand new. It was being used. Anything with a dot com behind its name uh, was, you know, was up 100 to 200 percent on, on the first day of trading. And over that time period, you know, from 1998 through about the beginning of 2000, the um, the NASDAQ, which at that point just really represented the tech sector. Um, I mean, it, it was up huge. It, uh, it, it doubled a couple of times just over those, those last couple of years in the 90s. And so because of that, it brought in a lot of investors 
And the investors that were already there really, really were questioning, hey, um, am I missing out? Hey, my advisor has me in a diversified strategy, but it doesn't seem to be keeping pace with my neighbors who are in XYZ.com and have tripled their money over the course of the last 60 days. And so it was a very exciting time and there was a lot of assets being moved from traditional stocks and bonds to this technology sector. And um, of course, shortly after that, we, we now know that we had what's called the tech wreck um, where the NASDAQ, that tech sector, dropped by approximately 80%. Now, you know, it's easy to, to understand that pets.com went under and so forth, but I want to keep in mind that also wrapped up in this was Apple, Microsoft, uh, Amazon. Some of the, um, the longest, the, the best and longest term winners, well, they dropped by 80% too. And it was just fact that, hey, everybody got on board with that. Everybody was optimistic. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, they weren't. And so people abandoned their long term strategies. They they said they jumped onto this dot com phase and they quickly uh, lost a lot of money. Now, it'd be one thing if I could tell you that, hey, the NASDAQ, you know, it went down, but then it immediately popped back up. And that may be the way you remember it, but it's not the way that it happened. The market peaked out uh, at all time highs in early 2000 and didn't recoup those highs until late 2014. I want you to think about that. That's 14 years without seeing any growth from the top of the NASDAQ to the next top. And I just would question how many investors out there could hang in there for 14 years? How many people could hang in there for 14 years uh, having a negative account statement? And the answer is almost nobody. So what happened was, is that uh, people abandoned their, their long-term investment strategies in the late 90s. They jumped on tech, they got crushed, and then they went back to their long-term strategies, but with about 20 uh, I'm sorry, with about 80% less money. And that was really, really unfortunate, but it's something that we have to keep in mind as we look at um, this new AI thing as we look at cryptocurrencies, as we look at hot internet stocks, um, we've got to keep in mind that, that while the technology may be new this year, we've seen this before. And, um, and my question to you is, is, hey, if something goes wrong, can you hang in there for 14 years for it to come back? My guess is probably not. That's it's tough, but the story does illustrate that there's lessons to be learned from the past. And during that same time, I know Derek, you had shared with me there was a a famous article of of uh, surrounding Warren Buffett and whether or not he had lost his touch. Because obviously, being known as the great investor, um, <laughs> talk to me about this. This is another interesting one that also helps illustrate this point, especially given that it's in that same period of time in the late '90s that you were just mentioning. Yeah. So you know what's interesting about Warren Buffett is is that everybody holds him out to be a great stock picker. Maybe he is, maybe he is. 
But I would say that above his ability to pick individual stocks, it's a, his ability to have an investment process and stick with it over time that really makes the difference. The article that you're mentioning uh, was from December of 1999, kind of at the conclusion of that, uh, that tech bubble that we just talked about. And, you know, this was, you know, Barron's is probably the biggest financial publication that us investment advisors read. It comes out um, over the weekends and always has a lot of great articles and is usually very, very thoughtful. This one here in December, uh, December 27th, 1999 says, what's wrong, comma, Warren? What's wrong, Warren? And the reason that they were saying that is, is because while the tech side of the economy and the stock market had absolutely exploded, uh, Warren Buffett's traditional approach of buying cash flow generating assets of good solid companies that make products for which we all need and use on a regular basis, well, it was completely out of favor. And while everybody else switched over and said, hey, get me the dot-com stuff, Warren didn't do that. He said, I don't know much about that and it doesn't seem prudent to me. He said, I'm just going to stick with the same strategy that has served me so well. And he kept doing it. And for that, over the 1998, 1999 and early 2000, he underperformed, significantly underperformed the stock market. And so the question was, has Warren lost his touch? Is he, is he now out of touch with the, um, the realities of the new market? Is everything that, that he's known, is that, is that in the rear view mirror? And should we all be looking towards this newer technology? And the answer at the time was maybe. Uh, but as we know now, it didn't turn out that way. And so I pull up a chart right here and it goes uh, from the publication of this article and uh, compares his investment strategy through his holdings in Berkshire Hathaway um, to the S&P 500. And so since the publication of that article in December of 1999, Warren Buffett is up almost 800%. He did not do that by jumping onto new fads, new AI, new technology, new cryptocurrencies. No, he did that by having an investment strategy and sticking through it even when it was hard. Mm, no, that's a great story. I appreciate you sharing this. And uh, Derek, as we're kind of wrapping up today's conversation, if you had to bottom line it all, I mean, we've covered a lot. If you had to bottom line it all uh, for our audience with some key takeaways from the conversation, what would those be? And what would you want to send somebody on their merry way with? I think it's really about this. You got to understand who you are as an investor, what, what, who you are as a person, and what your long-term goals are. You then have to create an asset allocation, a high-level asset allocation that matches that matches with matches with who you are. If you're a growth investor, well then maybe you should be in stocks. If you're a very cautious, nervous investor, then maybe you shouldn't be in stocks. If you're someplace in between, there's probably a combination for you. But what but once you 
got that asset allocation and you've picked your investments, you, you have to have enough belief in it to ride it through the highs and the lows of the market. When I say highs and lows, I don't just mean the, the charts. I also mean our emotions. When emotions take control, we have to have such conviction in the plan that we've created for our investments that it doesn't sway us to make foolish decisions that statistics tell us cost us money. Love it. Derek, for anybody out there that would enjoy a conversation with you and your team talking about their unique financial situation and maybe going through this process with you and your team, what would be the best way they could get in touch with you guys just to open up that dialogue? You can find us at mononwealth.com. And on there, there's a couple of uh, links that allow for you to schedule what we call a discovery meeting. The discovery meeting is an opportunity for you to talk with us about who you are and what you want. We can help you develop an investment plan to bridge the gap that makes sense for you in the long run. And it'll allow for you to stay focused on your long-term goals and maybe, um, maybe stop looking at all the noise and listening to all the noise around us. So find us on mononwealth.com. I'd also say this, if you're not ready to meet with us in person, um, the information that I shared here today was taken from a white paper that we've written. Uh, we call it our wealth management plan, part number two. Maybe I need to come up with a, a, a better title for it, but that's what it's called. In this, it's a 20 page white paper that goes through each and every aspect that we do here in our office to develop an investment plan for our individual clients. And I'm, I'm willing to give uh, the audience that for free. What I need for you to do is, uh, again, just go to mononwealth.com, request that information, and we'll be happy to email it over to you. Fantastic. Well, Derek, look, I appreciate you carving some time out of your busy schedule. And I know you got clients to serve, so we'll let you get back to, to doing that. But uh, looking forward to jumping back on the next with, one with you. And hey, good to be here as we kick off season two of the show. Good to be with you, Ryan. Thank you. Of course, of course. And hey, folks, we're going to take one final moment, as we always do, and thank you all for stopping by and spending some time with us on the show today. If you did take anything away from today's discussion, you benefited from it in any way, shape, or form, well, make sure you hit that subscribe button then on whichever platform you did check us out on today so you don't miss out on great conversations like these where Derek and I will unpack different wealth management conversations and topics that are extremely prudent in today's society. So we want to make sure that you don't miss out on any of those episodes and any of the value that can, uh, you know, be associated with these conversations before Derek, I'm Ryan. We're going to go ahead and say so long today, but we appreciate you stopping by and being with us on modern wealth management.